Hello, and welcome back to SciSection. I'm your journalist, Amy Stewart, for the SciSection radio show, broadcasted on CFMU 93.3 FM radio station. We're here today with Dr. Christopher Gustafson, an associate professor of agricultural economics at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and a researcher that uses concepts from behavioral economics to explain the complex relationship people have with food. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Dr. Gustafson. My pleasure, thanks for having me. My first question is just, to give a little background to our audience about your education and your career that kind of brought you to where you are today. So I um, am actually only about 40 miles from where I grew up. I grew up on a, a corn and soybean farm in rural Nebraska um, and uh, came to the University of Nebraska-Lincoln for uh, my undergraduate degree and was initially going to um, do a, a program, a major in the College of Arts and Sciences, but uh, coming from a high school where my graduating class was 18 people, when I got to that department, which was very large and, and pretty impersonal, it, it just uh, didn't feel like a good fit. So we have an agricultural campus, which is separated a little bit from many of the other majors. And uh, so I came out to the agricultural economics departments, which was another area of interest. So I was kind of interested in politics and policy at, at that point in time. And um, a big part of economics is, is policy and policy analysis. So moved out here, got my bachelor's here, went to uh, Italy for a year to do um, work on a research project and went to graduate school in California at the University of California, Davis and in, in the Ag agricultural and resource economics department there. Did a postdoc for about three years in Tanzania and then got a job here and came back uh, essentially where I'd started. We have a lot of undergrad students that listen to our podcast. I think it really shows how you can start off in one place and get all of these experiences. And then sometimes you end up back like in the same place or you end up somewhere completely different. So that's a very unique case, I think. So for my next question, uh, because you do a lot of research about, like I said, the the relationship people have with food and uh, the choices and decisions people make. I wanted to pick your brain about fad diets. Um, some examples being like the carnivore diet or fruitarian or even gluten-free sometimes can be considered a fad diet. And I wanted to know what your thoughts are on these. Yeah, so I <clears throat> I have done a little bit of research in this area. I have with co-authors um, a couple of papers on the gluten-free diet um, specifically. And you know, I've heard of... A number of these other diets. We actually have a paper that we need to get finished up and sent out that's looking at um, sort of factors that predict what makes someone more likely, more or less likely to follow a fad diet or to try a fad diet. So there, you know, we've got a bit more going on in that area. But I, you know, I think I don't know that they're great for people. Uh, the, so the gluten-free diet you mentioned, I mean, obviously for some people that is a critical diet that they really need to follow. So anyone with celiac disease or non-celiac gluten sensitivities really needs to be avoiding gluten, but I think apparently became in, attractive to other people. So uh, was was picked up and kind of promoted by people with influence. And so, you know, I, I think there's still a lot left to be done. There isn't actually a whole lot of research out there on fad diets and what makes people follow fad diets from from the research that we have done there there are 
demographic characteristics that seem to be associated with being more likely to follow some of these diets, but really the, the sorts of things that in you know, the research that we have, have published really kind of predicted whether someone was on a gluten-free diet were things like beliefs. And so we, in the survey we did, we asked questions about people's beliefs about how healthy the a gluten-free product was compared to its gluten-containing conventional counterpart, how nutritional they thought it was, and, and even dug down into specific nutrients like fats and, and calories. And so people who had more positive beliefs about the gluten-free diet were significantly more likely to be on a gluten-free diet, which I think makes sense. Where they came up with those beliefs is a little bit less clear. We we did ask people about the sources of information that they had used or that had sort of directed them to a gluten-free diet or caused them to think about following a gluten-free diet. And we kind of had the hypothesis that social media was going to play a big role, but it didn't really. So the main sources of information that that led people to follow a gluten-free diet were friends and family sort of suggesting it even more so uh, if it had been suggested to them by a health professional, like a, a physician or a registered dietitian, that, that had a stronger influence. But the, the biggest influence was uh, a category that we threw in called own research, or I did my own research on the topic, which I think is pretty intriguing. And we didn't anticipate that, so we didn't build in additional questions to to try to investigate that. But you know, my interpretation is that you know they maybe encountered the idea somewhere, so maybe they saw it on social media or a friend or family member suggested it. But then they went off, you know, looked at the information themselves, and and that really convinced them that that they should be uh, following that. So these were all people who didn't have a diagnosis of celiac disease or or non celiac gluten sensitivities. So I, yeah, I think it's, there, there are a lot of factors that seem to go into this. That's very interesting how you said social media didn't play as big of a role as you kind of anticipated. Um, it seems like more it kind of like sparked the idea. And then with this own research, whatever they consider research, I feel like that could be pretty broad. Like, did they read academic journals or did they read a blog post or was it just yep. more social media? It's, it's very interesting about where people are getting their information from. Yes, I, I agree. I, I'm guessing it's probably not academic journals. <laughs> I would assume <laughs> that as well. I could be wrong about that. My next question is, do you think there's some negative implications of fad diets? Um, there's some obvious health implications, especially when you're looking at really restrictive diets, I'm sure. But uh, what do you think other health or non-health related implications could be of this restrictive eating? I, I really, I haven't spent a whole lot of time thinking about non-health implications. I I I think there are some clear health implications, at least in sort of the the time period leading up to now for the gluten, -free, going back to the gluten-free diets, gluten-free products have not had the same nutritional profile that conventional products have. They're having to use a number of alternative things to make up for the lack of gluten and its ability to be cohesive and 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 make the product appealing to people. And, and, and those alternative non-gluten-containing substitutes don't have the same nutrients. So people, I mean, even people who are, who have celiac disease and have to follow that diet for 
health reasons <clears throat> need to be thinking about finding sources for nutrients they're not getting from gluten-free products. I guess for non-health related implications, I think could first thing that comes to mind is that there may be some social isolation effects. Uh, you know, if you have a group of friends and suddenly you're eating a very restrictive diet, you might not be able to go out with them to the places that they're going. And if it becomes an important part of your identity, which I think can happen, some of them, if you really believe that that your you know circle of friends are making a grave mistake and continuing to eat a traditional diet that uh, you all had been eating before, that might create some friction in your social group as well. Yeah, I definitely agree with what you said about the the health aspect of it. Um, I'm vegetarian myself, and I I don't typically err on the side of finding meat replacements like fake meat because you're not really getting the nutrients that you would be when you're eating meat. So I try to find things that have the same things meat have, but just not meat. So I feel like if a person is gluten-free and they're just, you know, eating something that typically has gluten, but it's been substituted with all these other things to make it taste like the same thing, just without gluten, you're not really getting any of the benefits. You're still missing out on quite a bit. Yeah. And, and like, well, for someone who's following a vegetarian diet, this idea of plant-based meat substitutes has been... Uh, I think in sort of the social conversation a lot <laughs> the last couple of years. And I, my, my understanding is that some of those, those products that are plant-based, but that try to really replicate meat in the experience of eating them are really not, <laughs> not that healthy for the individual. I mean, maybe it's, and I'm not saying that this is the case because I don't know, it, maybe it's better uh, environmentally um, because it's plant-based. And so animal, you know, negative uh, impacts of animal production might not be there, but you might not be getting the benefits that you assume you are because you're eating a plant-based product. It definitely seems a little bit like greenwashing almost because we kind of assume that maybe it's better for the environment if it doesn't have gluten in it, or it's better for the environment if it doesn't have meat in it. But if it's filled with 500 different ingredients that are all from different parts of the globe, it's not necessarily more environmentally friendly or health friendly. That, yeah, that certainly might be true. So I, I guess I don't know that I would call that greenwashing because I don't know that it, in my mind, that would be sort of purposefully making yourself feel better about some action. Whereas I think a lot of this would probably just be ignorance and and assumptions about things being healthier when in fact they aren't. And and all of us having kind of limited time and cognitive resources to be able to to do the research necessary to actually verify that the things we're doing are better. So for my next question, uh, when I was reading about uh, your work and research, I, I see you did a lot of work in health disparities while you were working in Tanzania. Um, I would love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, I so I, I have, I guess the thing that I would sort of say as a lead into that is that I my work that I think is, has been most relevant to health disparities has been with specific minority communities where those studies have not had a general population sort of comparison built in. So it, I think that the disparities are there, but there's not a clear comparison group to, you know, to compare within the research I've actually been doing. But in Tanzania, I um, did work with pastoralist communities that are really sort of um, among the most precarious positions for groups within Tanzanian society. They have traditionally been highly mobile and have have moved around following pasture and resources for their animals due to increasing human populations. Those Their ability to do that has been restricted significantly. And so they are <clears throat> at, a, at a disadvantage and have become increasingly sedentarized. 
in the U.S., I've also worked with the Rosebud Lakota tribe um, in South Dakota early on in my time here. And again, you know, that's another minority group that is, I think, significantly disadvantaged in, in terms of the resources that they have and the way that they've been treated um, historically. And so worked in collaboration with um, entities in their tribal government to try to make the food environment healthier, um, as well as to promote healthy choices within that environment. So, I, I, you know, I've worked in predominantly, I'd say, in those two domains. Though, you know, those are two pretty different. The the Tanzania context and the the U.S. context are are pretty different in a lot of ways. Um, and so, I talk about Tanzania then. After living after living there three years, we have a lot of. Uh, my wife and I were both there at the same time. She's also a scientist. And uh, so we've got a lot of fond memories of of Tanzania. So what our project there looked at was within a, a marginalized population that's heavily dependent on on their own production of, you know, largely animals. There's some, we, we actually worked with three uh, ethnic groups that are pastoralists. One has traditionally been agro-pastoralists. So they have a tradition of raising and preserving sweet potatoes and greens and a number of uh, non-animal food products. And, and so I think they're in a little bit better position to deal with the encroachment of more mainstream populations on lands that would have been available for grazing. But the other two populations were traditionally purely pastoralists and have turned to mostly growing corn uh, for home consumption. But, you know, being traditionally pastoralist and relying um, on predominantly cattle, sheep, and goats uh, for food sources, their, they, their traditional food consumption patterns don't consider other sources of food that, you know, might be available to them now being in, in one place. Things like fish in local waterways that, that, would be nutritionally beneficial, but not traditional. And so we we worked to develop culturally appropriate livestock health messaging, also human health and nutrition messaging. So we we did a we had a four year long project that we did with them, and and sort of some a number of additional questions that we threw in there, like about male and female control over productive assets and how that related to household food security, women's dietary diversity, uh, and, and other outcomes like children going, having the opportunity to go to school because um, you have to pay school fees and for uniforms and stuff like that for kids to be able to go to school. So we're working on some of the data. We have some publications out there, including some of that work about male versus female control of productive assets and how that relates to dietary diversity and and uh, food security within the household, um, which is pretty interesting. Where, perhaps not surprisingly, when women have have assets that they have control over, those outcomes are better uh, at the household level and for the women themselves. And and then we also did some like, qualitative work directly, asking them to talk about what they use those resources for. And so they talked, you know, about using those assets they controlled to supplement household food sources if those were low, which, you know, reinforces the relationships we were finding from the 
quantitative data we were looking at, but also explicitly mentioned things like school fees and clothes for the kids and medicine for the family. So it was a very interesting study. It was great working with those communities. That's fascinating how you kind of just started by assessing, um, you know, how they source their food, like you said, they're a pastoral community, and then how that all trickles out and affects everything else um, from like uh, gender disparities, how how the children fare and income and all that. I mean, it makes sense how it would all be intertwined, but it's very interesting to see that uh, you're actually researching the effect in a, in a proper way. Very cool. All right. I think that's all the time we have for today. But thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Gustafson. It was very interesting to hear your takes and your research that you've done on diets like um, the gluten-free diet. And it was fascinating to hear the work that you went and did um, not only just uh, in North America, but also in, in different continents. Uh, it's very impressive. Thanks thanks for having me. That's it for this week of Sci Section. Make sure to check out our podcast available on global platforms for our latest interviews.